Hello, and welcome back to Character Speaks, a podcast in partnership with ProSign Design to spotlight passionate character educators who are walking the talk. I'm your host, Barbara Gruner, and today we are visiting with Gary Gruber out in California. He's an author, an educator, and a lifelong learner. Thank you, Gary, for joining us today. My pleasure, Barbara. Glad to be here with you and to talk about Character Speaks. Character does a lot of things, but certainly it speaks loud and clear in lots of ways. We just have to train ourselves to listen. (laughs) I think you're right. And uh, I, uh, in fact, I used that with kids often. Uh, I said, make sure your brain is engaged before starting your mouth. Um, Tried to get them to think before they speak. Um, I like that. Well, it was just a a reminder because once the words are out, you can't get them back. And training kids and some adults as well (laughs) to... uh, as I say, make sure the brain is in gear before engaging the mouth. Yes, I'm a big fan of saying we are all just little kids in different sized bodies, in different ages and stages of our lives. Um, I know we connected on Twitter, but many of the listeners may not know much yet about you and your journey. Can you tell us a little bit about who Gary Gruber is? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I've lived hung around a long time and got to do a lot of different things. So most of my career was really in education at, at various levels, all the way up uh, K-12 through college and postgraduate school. So it's been a long and uh, wonderful journey uh, working with primarily with schools, colleges, and universities, and also taught in a hospital third-year residence for a while. But Most of it, I would say, centers around family, kids, learning, and um, growing and changing. That's how I would condense it down. So it's been a full career of teaching and leading, and I've had the opportunity to do a number of different things in a number of different places over those years. Um, But as I said, the, the themes have primarily been with children and adults in learning communities. That's probably how I would describe it without going into too much detail. And I I documented a lot of that in a little uh, memoir that I wrote a few years ago called Seven Decades of Learning Memoir. So I don't want to put you on the spot, but seven decades means that you've been doing this for a very long time. And yet when I get on your blog, you're still posting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm an active blogger. Um, try to post fairly regularly. Uh, I had a full-time career for 50 years, and I've been semi-retired now for about uh, eight years. And I am so I'm I'm in I don't know how how to say this. I'm in the uh, advanced stage of growth and learning. And I'm as a committed lifelong learner, I'm still learning and growing and changing. It's learn, grow, and change. That's, that's how I condense it down into very simple terms. So you talk a lot about change, but I also read on your blog, like you're, you're finding really cool lessons in 
mundane things like, let's go to your August 15th post, shoes. <laughs> yeah, I try to take some experiences that I have and see what I can glean from those. Uh, the one on shoes just happened because of an experience I had riding on the train to the airport. Um, so while it sounds rather mundane and ordinary, most people wear shoes, although not all by any means, or, or all the time necessarily. Um, I just found it fascinating to see all the different kinds of shoes. Obviously, they were on, on the feet of all different kinds of people. But I, I, without looking at the people, you really couldn't tell anything by just looking at the shoes, except maybe what kind of work they did. Um, so it was a, I just take these little nuggets, I call them, that I discover along the way and see what I can make of it. So say you gave that post to a group of, I don't know, let's say high school kids. I, I guess you could give it to any readers that, you know, and asked them to talk about empathy because the whole time I'm reading it, I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, he is embedding um, a lesson in empathy here. I, I wonder how that would sound in, in your classroom. Yeah, I think that's a really, really, really good question. I have the belief that all of those people, the hundreds of people that I saw that morning with their various kinds of shoes, that every one of those people had a story to tell. And what, what it transcended for me, what the shoes transcended, was it transcended all of the, I'm going to say, pseudo-differences among people. In other words, shoes were the common denominator. But there were people of every size, shape, and color, all those varying personalities, various occupations, and yet... They all have so much in common. And so what I would try to, I guess, get kids to talk about is what they see in groups of people that um, are different and what they see in groups of people that are, are, have a certain commonality. And then we can talk about well, what unifies us and what divides us. So I would, just, I would just use those things as a springboard for some kind of deep <clears throat> conversation and discussion about our lives as we live them out day to day. So do you think most of your work in character education was um, through discussions and conversations? Well, certainly some of it was. And a lot of it was in the kind of the formal teaching. But there was a lot that was that emanated from what I would call object lessons, um, where people either got into difficulty or trouble, and what I always wanted to know what they could learn from that. Uh, so it was a very concrete experience, and we often use that as like a uh, case study, if you will, and tried to parse it and take it apart to see what went into it, what happened. Uh, I'll give you an example. Okay. A kid in school, and because I was you know, at, in various roles in schools, I was a principal and head of school and all that stuff um, after I was a teacher. Uh, and I was still teaching. Even as an administrator, I was teaching all the time. 
So this poor kid would end up in my office because he was in trouble. And, and I was really interested in having a conversation. There we go back to the conversation again. <laughs> I was really interested in having a conversation with, let's say it's him, not her, but it could have been her as well as him. But boys seem to have gotten into more trouble than girls. But that's another whole issue. Um, and I would say to him, so, uh, John, tell me, from your point of view, what happened? How did this all come to be? What happened? And he would go into a story uh, of what what happened, and it would it would uh, go along with his describing the details of other people who were involved, and so on and so forth. And and I would then come to a point where I would say to him, "Well, John, I have reason, and because he was brought to me because of an incident." I said, I have reason to believe that you may have been involved in this or you know who did it. Because in the beginning of the conversation, when he came to my office, one of the first things he said to me was, I didn't do it. Right. <laughs> right. And I said to him, I didn't ask you who did it. I just want to talk to you about what happened. So let's let's back up and you tell me what happened. So at the end of that, I said, I have reason to believe that you may have been involved or know who did it. And he said to me again, I didn't do it. I said, John, let me clarify. I didn't say that you did it. I'm just telling you that I think you may have been involved. And I, I could be wrong. But if I find out later that you were involved, then things are going to, the ante is going to go up. It's going to get even, it's going to get really difficult. And I don't want that, and I don't think you do either. So we'd talk a little bit more. And then he'd look at me, and he said, I did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so, so then, then now we're into a different level of conversation about what motivated him, whether it was response uh, on his part to something that happened or whether he actually was the instigator and so on and so forth. And I just wanted to peel the onion as it were, and find out behaviorally what what was in his mind and in his heart and what his values are that that may have gotten off track. And I, I looked at it as a teaching moment. And I was much more in the mode of being corrective than I was in being punitive. Because I, I believed and I still believe that kids can learn so much from their mistakes. You know, and it wasn't a tragedy. Uh, nobody was killed. Nobody had cancer. I mean, it, it just was not the end of the world. Yeah. And we, can, we can kind of weave it back together and make things right. So the conversation would often then end up with, John, how can we make things right in this situation? And let him take some responsibility for his behavior as well as for the correction and see what he learned from that and maybe go better the next time. So you were doing restorative practices before they kind of became trendy. (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Long, long time doing that. And I'm not sure why, except maybe some of it came out of my own, you know, behavior as a kid, which wasn't always pristine by any means. 
Well, um, and w- nobody's perfect, right? So we're all prone to mistakes, but probably how our parents and our teachers corrected right. us shapes how we want to help correct that next go-round, right? That next generation. Uh, no doubt about it. Yeah. And, and I think that more and more parents are being encouraged to allow their kids to make mistakes and learn from those rather than always protecting them and uh, keeping them in some kind of bubble where they think they're going to be safe. And I'd rather let kids make mistakes earlier that are less expensive than wait till later and make a big mistake that's more costly. Um, so that's that's just kind of my view on you know mistakes in kids and parents and teachers. Nice. I also see that you're big into change, which is kind of funny to me because a lot of people, they don't want to change or, you know, change is hard. It's not maybe even that we don't want to, but we're going to, we're, we're going to go through some pain probably if we're going to, you know, make some sustainable change. So can you talk about that a little bit? What, what puts you on fire about that? Well, I used to say long ago that the only person looking forward to change is a baby with a wet diaper. <laughs> That's a good one. And partly because change often is uncomfortable, takes you out of your comfort zone. Um, change is is uh, not only uncomfortable, but as you said, difficult. Doesn't come easily or quickly often. And if if we, I mean, my you look at my some of my material on change, and, and my tagline actually is, "Change is inevitable. Plan carefully." Mm-hmm. And there are two kinds of change, planned and unplanned. And if you have a chance to plan it, why not seize that opportunity and design the kind of change that you want or that you would prefer whenever possible? Now, granted, we can't predict everything, and we get surprised. But what I even say in those instances, if you have a repository or you have resources available to bring to bear, when that happens, you're going to be in a lot better shape than you would have been otherwise. So that, what kinds of resources am I talking about? Well, I I consider myself a fairly flexible person and adaptable. And when you can adapt to change that is unplanned, you stand a much better chance of surviving it, I think. And you can think of those... You can think of that in terms of health or work or children or accidents or all kinds of things that are not necessarily planned. And you're still going to have to have the wherewithal to respond to that creatively whenever possible and certainly responsibly. And if you can bring to bear on it some some uh, thoughts and plans that you may have had before, sometimes we call them a contingency plan. Right. And I don't, I don't just mean a, a crisis management plan, although that's not a bad idea for organizations, obviously. Um, everything's not a crisis. Um, but when you come to that kind of fork in the road where you have to make a decision, you want to be well equipped in order to make the best decision at that time. I mean, you can revisit it later and see if it was the right decision. Um, doesn't have to be cast in bronze or stone. 
And uh, so, so that when you have this opportunity, is what I say, when you have this opportunity to plan the kind of change you want, why not? And that can have to do with relationships, it can have to do with work, it can have to do with where you live, all kinds of things. And we make those decisions, we make some pretty big decisions all throughout our lives. Or at least that's been my experience. They seem, they seem big. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Planning for change. That's an interesting concept. Well, the dynamics of planned change have some requirements. Uh, if it's going to be well-planned and well-thought-out, and that's why I think in the last, what, 10 years, that design thinking has taken hold and gotten so much traction uh, because the design thinking folks – uh, are big on designing change for the future. And that has to do with schools, it has to do with healthcare, it has to do with, unfortunately, it doesn't have a lot to do with politics. <laughs> uh, people, people become, I'm going to say, too comfortable with the status quo. And I have never been a big fan of the status quo, I've always questioned questioned it uh, to see if the prevailing um, conditions and situation is the best one we can have. And I know we we a lot of us operate under the the banner of everything could be better. And I, I if you look back at my blogs, you'll see one I wrote called "When is good enough? Good enough? Good enough? Sometimes is good enough." But we're always, we're, a lot of us in the education racket are of the mind that you can, there's always room for improvement. Well, of course there is. But don't get, don't get hung up on it, such that you're never satisfied with, with where you are and with what the results are. You need to celebrate that, too. I think celebrations are so important. Sometimes we get so busy doing that we don't stop and reflect and celebrate what we've done, huh? Absolutely. And, and one of the things I think we've lost in families, in our culture, uh, and there are a lot of reasons for it, obviously, uh, is what I refer to as domestic ritual, besides birthdays. But other celebrations that families um, can enjoy, even something as what used to be, I think, simple, was the family dinner table. Yeah around which some really rich conversations took place. And I don't mean just the ones of, oh, what did you do in school today? That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, that might be important, but there are other things that are important, too, in terms of kids' lives and how they intersect with the community and so on and so forth. But that's just one example. I think there are other examples, too. Family trips. Uh, I think those are back in vogue somewhat. Um, and, and again, uh, people doing those kinds of things together can really enhance relationships and, uh, really cement, uh, more productive relationships for the future when you have that to rely on. And to help those kids practice those communication skills, because, you know, we kind of just assume that they're at home communicating, so then they'll communicate at school, but if they're not at home communicating, you know, 
we right. want them to practice something they may not have had exposure to yet. Right. And there's often a disconnect between school and home in terms of how the kid operates in each of those environments. And over the years, I had parents, we, did, we would have a parent conference and um, describe the behavior of the child in school. And the parent would look at you puzzling with this puzzled look and say, are you sure you're talking about my kid? <laughs> now, that could be either way. It could be because this kid is an angel in school and a devil at home. Or it could be the other way around. Yes. It's really causing lots of trouble at school and doesn't cross the line ever at home. So you have that kind of disparity often that was really often quite amusing uh, to try to <laughs> bring the two together in the one child. Yes. I found it amusing. I'm not sure the parents always did. No, no, but it's the teacher either, really, because, you know, the parent is sitting, and you want to say, have you met your child? But, but you know, no, sometimes they truly are two yeah. different people in two different environments, so it's certainly yeah. good for us to be aware of. I often work to get parents and the schools and the students all on the same page, uh, and by doing, and the way we did it, was to make sure that the student was involved in the parent conference. I, we used to refer to that as a three-legged stool. And then uh, I got to thinking about that over the last several years. Uh, and that, would, that resulted in another blog called the four-legged stool. Because not only do we have the parent, the child, and the school represented often by the teacher, we have a fourth leg to the school which is the community where the student lives. And there are other people in that community uh, with whom the, the kid interacts. Uh, neighbors, friends, um, shopping teams. Yes, yes. yes so we have this fourth leg or influence uh, that, that the child is relating to. And that's a place where values and character comes out in terms of how this child, uh, what the beliefs are and what they value as being important in the way of behaving either appropriately or not on occasion. Yeah. So you were a half a century in the <laughs> schools, and, and I think you still get back to schools. Right? I do. I do. I work with, uh, I do some professional development for faculty. Uh, I do some work with administrative teams in terms of team building. Uh, I do some work with kind of visioning for the future, uh, helping them, again, plan for the kind of change they want. I love and I do it. that, do it uh, on an individual basis with people who are changing or want to change often uh, careers or move up the ladder, move up their career ladder in the field where they are. Can so, you, yes, continue oh. to work part-time, at least, and I, I enjoy the part-time work a lot more than the full-time work. Oh, yeah. It's nice to be able to get away and have some relaxation and downtime. Can you pinpoint, maybe identify one thing that you feel like has changed the most in, from when you started to today? Oh, good grief, Barbara. From when I started? <laughs> when I started... 
was so long ago that you know there was no there were no technology didn't exist right right me too well, mm-hmm. it did technology did exist but it was in a much more primitive form fax machine but, telephone yeah yeah uh, we had telephones when I was a kid I remember my grandparents farm in order to make a telephone call you had to ring up the operator to make the call for you uh, there was a crank on the side of the telephone box that you turned and it rang the operator and yes, she would answer, yeah. she would answer central and you would say uh eileen i want to talk to jess steiner and she would <laughs> plug you in but she had all these wires and all these plugs and stuff down at the telephone office that was great but, technology we had a party line and we could um right. call and talk to her and then we could t- call and talk to the neighbor and she got to listen. <laughs> I think we all listened okay. in. It was kind of fun. There's did, but it was a different ring. Correct. Right, right. So you must have lived in the country. I did in Wayside, Wisconsin. So it's very rural. We had a dairy farm, and Gary, it's still in our family 157 years now. Wow, wow, that's it's great. Super fun to go back to because my brother and my uncle run it. Yeah, well, not just not only technology, but but the speed with which things take place. I mean, just, we're talking about change. Uh-huh, yes. Everything has accelerated so much so that it sometimes seems hard to kind of keep up. Uh, that, that can be a challenge. So, yeah, when I first started, it was, it was in the, it was in the, uh, oh, I don't know what age to call it. It wasn't quite the Stone Age. <laughs> but it, it was um, that, and here's here's here was the uh, puzzling thing for me. By the time I got to be an adult, and went to work in schools, and in those fifty years of working in schools, they did not change much, and everything else did, and that was a huge uh, issue. And right, and right now we are really on the cusp of seeing some serious reform and change in education, in the way schools are organized, in the way um, learning is taking place, in the way information, which is just everywhere, uh, being shared and what kids are doing with it. And um, there are lots of schools now that have, changed dramatically how they are delivering education. And to me, even again at my stage in life, that's very exciting to see. It's and fun I, to watch, isn't it? Yeah. And I feel finally, <laughs> I guess, rewarded, you know, for all the effort and time I've put in over the years in this enterprise at every level, at every level. And I'm talking about from, you know, preschool right up through graduate school. Well, it's well-deserved, no question. Um, I see that our time is almost out. Can you tell the listeners where they can connect with you, how they might follow your work, or you know, possibly even book you for some professional development? Sure. Uh, my website is just very simply my name, garygruber.com, and the contact information, the bio, more information than you need is there. <laughs> And that is also where I keep the blog. It's on the menu bar. You just hit blog if you're interested in that part of it. 
and um, my email, phone number, everything is right there. Fantastic. And what's next for you, Gary? That's a really great question. My wife uh, says two things to me all the time, has for years. One is, what's to become of us? <laughs> In other words, what's next? What's the next adventure? Because uh, we just moved here to Northern California this past November. And um, I guess the second thing she used to say to me was, I know as long as I'm married to you, I'll never have to worry um, that you will always be, you will always have work, uh, which is sweet. But we're about to actually take off next Tuesday for about five or six weeks on a cross-country road trip. And uh, that'll be interesting to see who we meet along the way, what we see, what, what, I, what I can learn. I go and do a little research on a couple stories I'm working on. Um, so I, I, I stay, I guess I, you would say I stay active, engaged. Uh, I read a lot. I write. And I have a great time. Well, you have definitely blessed the listeners this morning. I want to thank you, Gary, and remind the listeners that this podcast is supported by ProSign Design, a family-owned business dedicated to character, safety, and organization. I want to invite y'all to come along back next week as we continue the conversation about character education, connections, and life. Gary, I want to wish you Godspeed. If your travels bring you to Texas, please look me up in Friendswood. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity and enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate your time. If you liked what you heard, feel free to leave us a review. That would help. And in the meantime, remember, character speaks.